Hello, and welcome back to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of Movement is Life Caucus. Movement of Life is an initiative that aims to reduce health disparities, particularly in the areas of musculoskeletal and cardiovascular disease, mental health, and those disparities affecting women, Black and Latino communities, and populations living in rural areas. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dr. Minerva Campos, representing the National Hispanic Medical Association as a member of the Movement is Life Caucus. Before we introduce our wonderful guest, I want to mention that today we will complete our series inspired by the monograph created by Movement is Life entitled Values Defined by Whom, in which we have explored the question of what defines value in healthcare for its key stakeholders. We have explored the different payment models, including value-based payment, which of course is a type of reimbursement that rewards healthcare providers with incentives based on the quality of care they provide, the development of the policy calling for these payment models, and the effects that these new payment models have had on the delivery of subspecialty care. And today we will explore the effects they have had on the delivery of primary care. For those of you who are interested at the end of this podcast, I will give you information so that you may download the link to this really wonderful monograph. Now at the business at hand, today it is my very great pleasure to introduce Dr. Nelly Correa, who is an Associate Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and in Women's Health, as well as in Family and Social Medicine at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She serves as the Senior Advisor of the first Hispanic Center of Excellence in New York State, and she co-directs the Summer Undergraduate Mentorship Program at Einstein. She has taught a required course for third-year medical students entitled Patients, Doctors, and Communities, and is responsible for developing the section of the course pertaining to cultural competency, implicit bias, and health disparities. This is something that Movement in Life is so interested in. She served as the Education Corps Director of the Bronx Center to Reduce and Eliminate Disparities in Health, and she has an active private practice in the Bronx where she also serves as an attending physician at the North Central Bronx Hospital of the New York City Health and Hospitals Corporation. She is currently chair of the board of National Hispanic Medical Association and has been recognized by many organizations, as you can imagine, for her contributions to medicine, teaching, and her community. So Dr. Correa, thank you so much. Welcome. We are just delighted to have you here today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and it's a real honor to do this podcast with you, Dr. Campos. You do a lot of different things within medicine. Uh, you're in different locations. Uh, you're doing different sorts of activities. Can you tell us a little bit about the different settings of work that you do right now? I trained and grew up in the Department of Family and Social Medicine, so that much of my medical care has a foundation uh, in a person's living situation is and, and how they are able to cope with their lives. So in addition to taking care of their health problems, you know, their, their illnesses or their preventative health issues, I also try to get involved with what their lives are like. So, you know, and in my, in training and in teaching medical students and residents, I also try to convey to them, the, you know, the fullness that it is to be able to take care of somebody, not just for their medical needs, but to get to know them a little bit. You've seen so much change uh, in medicine since you've been 
involved, as we all have. Uh, and the payment models are something that has always been around, but they've begun to change pretty recently. Tell us a little bit about the payment models that you work within. Everything changes and sometimes everything stays the same. So, you know, in my, in my history, I have taken care of people in public hospitals where there's no issue around whether they have an ability to pay. And I have taken care of patients in private practice, which is at the whole other end of the spectrum, where someone can prevent you from seeing a patient if their insurance card is outdated or it doesn't match. So, you know, as you can imagine, there are many frustrations with that system. And um, in between, we have some of the new iterations, you know, such as this uh, new value-based healthcare system where somehow criteria is being set up so that it will influence how much you're paid or not paid and what their presumed quality of care is. So that sometimes those match with my philosophy of taking care of people. And other times, you know, I go head on uh, trying to fight for the rights of the individual to be able to access health care. That, that's very interesting. And uh, so you've told us something about this experience that you that you have with these payment models. What's working in these models? You know, for me, I'm a great advocate of the public hospital system in New York City. We are very lucky to have the Health and Hospitals Corporation, you know, that provides care to everybody, regardless of their ability to pay, um, and has, as well as Medicaid, Medicare, and all of the payers, they have an HMO that belongs to the Health and Hospitals Corporation, and they also have a fee-for-service, you know, so that they have a sliding scale. If somebody can pay $2, that includes everything, you know, the visit and going to the pharmacy and doing, you know, whatever needs to be done. So, uh, you know, I'm a, that, that's my favorite. And I support it greatly because I think that is so important. And especially in our new Affordable Care Act and in some of the federal programs where immigrants are excluded, our uh, hospital system does not exclude people because of their documentation or, you know, what is going on with them. So luckily, we still are able to do that. Um, in the practice, we are pretty much the same because we're based in a community so that we take care of people that look like us and have similar issues. So, you know, I grew up in Manhattan, you know, was a, not an immigrant, but I came from Puerto Rico when I was five. And, you know, we struggled and my parents certainly took advantage of the fee-for-service system and sliding scales and things like that so that we could access health care. So my patients are very similar to me and my family in the way that I was. And what we do in our practice is that we try, uh, you know, to have access to all the plans. And one of the things that is very frustrating is that there are many plans and each of them have their own criteria. So if a person has a plan with one of the uh, payers, uh, it may or may not match. So what happens is they've had a doctor for many years and all of a sudden the plan changes and that doctor is no longer certified to provide services for that particular plan. And then the patient has to go seek 
another doctor. So in my work as a gynecologist, I run into a lot of women who are very distressed because they've been going to the same obstetrician gynecologist for years. They delivered their babies. They did everything with them. And then now they have to switch, you know, and they have to switch to me and they're okay with switching to me, but it's still very sad for them because they've had a relation, a long-term relationship with a physician that has been interrupted by the system. Yeah, you, you've mentioned so many things that, that are talked about in terms of these sorts of payment models. Uh, one is those are the complicating factor that when you see a patient, you literally seem to have to think about what kind of insurance or not insurance they have in terms of how you set out to work them up uh, and take care of them. Not so much that you don't do the standard that's required, but it's just that if they're paying out of pocket, you have to give some consideration to that. If they're if they have an insurance, they may have a drug formulary that you have to pay attention to. Uh, if they're certain kinds of uh, managed care organizations, there may be some performance measures that you particularly have to think about uh, that you might not normally even with some patients. So uh, how, do you, how does that work with you? Do, you? do you find that you're just getting used to doing that or, or is it just every day a frustrating it's item? It's a challenge. It's a challenge because, you know, for instance, if someone has a, a certain plan, there may be a formulary. So you would prescribe something and it may not be in their formulary. And then it, because it's electronic prescription, you don't even know whether they got it or not. And then they get to the pharmacy and the pharmacy will say, well, you can't have this. And you get phone calls saying, well, we don't we, we don't have this particular product. The other product is on formulary or you may not hear anything at all. So sometimes things fall through the cracks. And I've had patients that I've given antibiotics to and, they, and follow up in a week and they come back in a week later and they haven't taken anything. Um, but um, the other thing is referrals, you know, because if you have to refer for you know, certain procedures, then you have to look for physicians or practices that are in that, in that group. So that otherwise they would, again, reject the referral and the patient would not get. So it does impact continuity of care. And it's always a challenge because so, so it kind of requires that you keep close touch. And one of the things I know, you know, I'm not a great fan of electronic medical record, because it takes so much time away from delivery of care. However, one of the things that it does try to do is coordinate care and make sure that if you send a referral, then that medical record arrives at the referral and things like that. So, you know, there are benefits, but it is, it's very frustrating. And I think more frustrating for the patients than it is for me, because, uh, you know, I, I deal with it on a day-to-day basis. For them, it is just a source of, of really frustration and anger. And if they have a medical problem that needs uh pretty immediate attention, it's a problem, you know, and sometimes you end up with the option of, well, then you have to go to the ER, because I can't find anybody that's in your plan, you know, and we can't, we can't wait on this. So it does impact on, you know, when we talk about value, the value of the care that that someone is receiving, you know, and sometimes it's out of your hands. Let's talk a little bit about the patients. You know, the monograph that Movement is Life put together took focus groups and uh, literally took them from different geographic areas, uh, all women, 
but different parts of the country, so different perspectives. But bottom line is they pretty much all felt the same way. And one of their biggest um, concerns about the healthcare right now had to do with just just what you're talking about. You know, doctors not really knowing uh, about them, the communication aspect, the service aspect, uh, and some, and also some of the cost. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about if you've seen that within your own patients, uh, what do they gripe about the most? What are they unhappy about the most? Well, if they get in the door, they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, and that's that's sad, uh, isn't it? Because uh, you know, they really gripe about the amount of time it took for somebody to verify their insurance or to make sure they could be seen. Um, but I, you know, one of the things that you know, I agree. You know, the, with the focus group, the communication is key. And one of the things that is really important is to make sure that you talk and you listen to to where your patients are when they arrive in your office. You know, especially in these COVID times, the first thing I ask my patients, no matter what the purpose of the visit is, how are you and how is your family? Is everybody okay? You know, and then go from there. And often, you know, they have a lot of times they'll have family. I have patients from the Dominican Republic and they have relatives that have COVID or are ill and they can't travel to go see them. They've had people that have died. So I think they're starting off the visit with with that because they also say to me, and how are you and how is your family? So there is this communication of we're all in this together. And, you know, how can I help you? to 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 make it better so i think that the the key thing in, in in and i always tell my staff do not tell my patients to undress before i see them this this is something i got from social medicine i always meet them you know with their street clothes on so that we're in an equal foundation and it's a conversation and we have a conversation about why they're there, you know, what my expectations for the visit are and what are their expectations for the visit because they could conflict. I mean, I'm there and I just want to do their exam and get them out or something like that. <laughs> and they're there because they have this long-standing pain that they haven't had anybody listen to them about. And, you know, I have to adjust, well, in addition to doing the things that we need to do for this preventative care visit, you know, let's get a sonogram or let's find out what's going on, that you have pain or that you have these things going on. So it's a give and take. The other thing, and, you know, I suffer from this because what happens is sometimes I don't do my notes as I'm seeing them because I would have to then be on the computer and I feel like I don't want to be typing when they're talking to me. So sometimes I use the in-between times, you know, to, to do the medical record or I just take notes. And then later on, you know, after after hours, I'll do the, the visit record. So, but I think that the most important part of any kind of visit is communication and making sure that you find out you know, not only the physical problems, but what are the worries? Are you depressed? Or do you have a job? Do you have a place to live? Or do you have enough money for food? You know, all of the things that we quote unquote call the social determinants of health, but that are really part of the day to day 
of, you know, our patients. It sounds like you just naturally in your course of taking care of people and because you know them, uh, you you incorporate questions uh, to find out a little bit more about the individual and their family and sort of the challenges that they're facing. Uh, uh, and I guess today, you know, we're starting to pay more and more attention to this and finding a way to actually get at it such that some systems are beginning to uh, actually try to assess the social determinants of health into their medical record and also to tie in with community agencies so that things can be done about certain issues. Uh, it's very difficult, though, isn't it, for a healthcare system to really get into that. It almost seems overwhelming in terms of the problems that patients come to you with and how can one person or one even healthcare system deal with them? But do you think it's worth the try in terms of at least assessing and then taking it from there? You know, this is what we're finding. What what could we do about this? Maybe just this one thing. If housing is an issue, what what can we do? What has been in your experience with that? You know, absolutely. I think that it's 100% worth the effort of making sure that this happens. Um, in private practice, it's harder because you're isolated and you don't have a social worker down the hall or somebody who can help you with this. But, you know, we do have access to if someone is depressed to making sure they get a referral for counseling or to make sure that they do get referrals and that you fill out forms for them so that they can work with their housing needs or you know whatever needs they, they have. Um, I'm so uh, blessed that I that I actually, you know, when I went through social medicine, it was the beginning of the community health uh, system and the building of community health centers, which were manned uh, or staffed by people from the community. And, you know, we were lucky to have social workers and lucky to have, you know, access to, you know, the, the, the main thing that we lacked access to in all of these systems was specialty care. Because, you know, there's primary care. And then when someone needs the experts or the tertiary care providers, it becomes very important for there to be these links, these communications between the primary health care system and what and you know again in health and hospitals we're lucky because we do have access you know if somebody needs bypass surgery well there is a hospital in the system that they can be referred to or if somebody needs an appendicitis has appendicitis and they need an appendectomy we can get them all that uh it's harder i think if you're an isolated uh practitioner, you know, in private practice, or if you're in a clinic, uh, you know, that does not have these, these, uh, the ability to provide these kind of services. So, as I said, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I've had access to working in all of these settings. Yes. that, ha And I know the continuum and what a blessing it is to be able to call the social worker on the phone. And in a, a few minutes, she's able to talk to the patient and spend a you know, a half an hour trying to figure out how she can help them with their housing need or their crisis, or if they have a child who is, you know, there's violence or there's a child that's having some mental issues and that there are people there that can be supportive of that. Because I don't, I think health is not an isolated thing. You know, you can get all your colonoscopy, your mammogram, everything that you need, 
But if your heart is broken because your teenager is pregnant and you don't know what to do, you know, that that kind of stuff. Uh, and the other thing I try to do is go generations. So if they have children, they start asking me, well, when should my daughter go to the gynecologist? I tell them, whenever you think that she has questions that need to be answered and it doesn't have to be for an exam, it can just be to prevent that teen pregnancy or to you know, help with whatever's going on with her at school. Is she being bullied? Is she happy? You know, those kind of things. So, you know, you, you, you kind of extend beyond the patient. You go to the patient and the family. You go to the patient and the community. Do you feel safe? Can you exercise? Can you get the right foods? It all, you know, so social determinants of health is real all about holistic care and making sure that somebody is taken care of in ways that they need to be taken. And you have your usual patients that have no problems at all. And those are the ones that, you know, you just, you know, believe them. You know, when they tell you they don't have any problems, don't look for problems. But right. if they do, there. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, so one of the things that strikes me and that what you've said is that in some ways, small private practices can get at that a little bit easier than big systems. I think that one of the things that um, we know about value-based payment models is that it's put the squeeze on a lot of small private practices. Uh, and I know that you I've spoken to you before and you've talked about different colleagues of yours whose practices have not survive not only the models but the pandemic and so and and are closing their doors so it leaves people out without doctors and providers they've had for many many years who knew all about them uh, and now are forced into either other providers if they can take them uh, or they're forced to hospital ERs when the need arrives what, what's been your experience with that in the Bronx yeah, sadly, I think that many of the programs that are doing uh, the kind of reimbursement that is leading to value-based payment uh, have left out the private practitioner and the value that the private practitioners have to the community because they happen to be the go-to doctors, the doctors who sometimes speak their language uh, and the ones who are familiar with what their problems are. And I've had many colleagues that have either had to close their practices because they were working just to pay their employees and their rent, or they've had to uh, sell them or give them to the big hospitals and what happens is they stay as employees of the hospital during the you know the initial years and then eventually are replaced by you know younger doctors who may or may not be familiar with that community and that you know to me is a sadness because i think that in the reimbursement model for instance in new york state we have um several models and one of them is called a CMO where uh, or an IPA where Medicaid funds are given uh, to either an institution or a group and then they are to evaluate the quality of care that is being given in the private practice and they decide how much reimbursement or how many incentives that particular practice is is able to to earn and 
you know, what happens is, you know, the, the, the uh, we talked about quality of care. And of course, sometimes people will see a private practitioner's practice as not having quote unquote quality because they haven't met certain criteria or certain um, things that need to be done, like the eye test or something. And then they're kind of dinged because they haven't done those things. But on the other hand, they've been available to that patient for the abdominal pain, the sore throat, the whatever is going on with them at that particular time. So um, in our effort to try to get standardized care and to have criteria that people uh, follow, you know, cookie cutter criteria, sometimes you miss out on value, the value that the patients get from the access and the value that the provider gets from the satisfaction of taking care of patients within their community. So those two are values, but they don't, sometimes they don't get measured into the equation the way that we would want them to be. I think that's a great, a great point. You know, you kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater sometimes, you know, and uh, I, it, it's, it's a subtle thing maybe to some, but it, it's real uh, to the patients and to the physician taking care of them. And uh, the system doesn't really uh, account for everybody. So there's people that are left out of it, providers and patients. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's uh, something that needs to be corrected for sure. And I think also, you know, I'm a proponent of evidence-based care. So certainly you want to follow the guidelines and you want to uh, make sure that people get quality and that they get what they need to get. And, you know, and, and many of much of our evidence shows us that things make sense. One of the things that ha- we struggle with is the annual PAPs. The rules changed. So I have to spend a long time telling my patients, you know, you don't need a pap every year. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that you don't need an exam every year. You still need to come. You still need to have. But it's a time. You have to take the time for education. And they're still worried. You mean if I don't get my pap every year, I can get cervical cancer. And I, you know, I have to inform them about the data and reassure them that, you know, with the new HPV testing you know, it's okay not to have a PAP every year. So we make deals. Let's do a PAP in two years instead of three years, you know, and stuff like that, because I feel <laughs> way, way more comfortable with that. On the other hand, I have some that say, oh, good, I'll see you in three years. So <laughs> I say, oh, don't do that. Because <laughs> lots of things and I can tell you how many patients I see in two to five years because now they don't have to have an annual pap. Wow. And then I have to start all over with them because they haven't had a mammogram either and they missed the colonoscopy. And so those are the, you know, the things that we know that in preventative care work. You know, I spent a lot of time giving them booklets on diets and, and diabetes prevention because diabetes is a big problem. So, but then, you know, where can they exercise? You know, do they have a safe place where they can go walking or jogging if they want to jog? How do they begin, you know? And even referral for bariatric surgery because one of the things that I've seen is the obesity epidemic in New York is just horrific. And, you know, you have women that weighed 150 pounds and now weigh 300 pounds. And they don't, we don't know where to begin. 
And sometimes the beginning is bariatric surgery, and they feel so good after they've had the surgery and lost those extra 150 pounds. So they again, diabetes, <laughs> diabetes, and they lose their diabetes and they lose their hypertension. So we can have great interventions. We just need the referral, the ability to have someone to receive them to do that tertiary care. I mean, the the, the tertiary care, and then get them back. Uh, yeah, to- and that's a, and you bring up a really good point. Uh, you know, some of these models, some of the unintended consequences of these models is uh, what's called uh, cherry picking, lemon dropping. In other words, if a patient's going to cause a lot of problems in terms of money and cost, and uh, you maybe just don't take them onto your plan if you have a choice, and you pick the healthier people, and your plan can actually work a little smoother. It sounds like the systems that you're involved in, though. There's no uh, lemon dropping, cherry picking. You just take all comers in yeah. both in both the <laughs> hospital and in your private practice. You're not uh, making those kinds of decisions, and yeah, it's we, good to we, it's good to know. To them. We leave it up to them to reject us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's and it's actually heartening to know that there are providers out there who don't do that. You know, who take all comers. And uh, I I think I was discussing with someone yesterday, somebody says, oh, well, you know, everybody takes Medicare. I said, no, they don't. No, they don't. Medicare is not taken by every single provider, you know, unfortunately. And And Medicaid certainly is not. People are trading in their Medicare for HMO Medicare. Right. That's where they run into problems because the HMO Medicare promises them the world, you know, dental, eyes, the world. And then when, when they go to their provider, they say, oh, no, we don't take this one. Right. And that's the problem. That's the catch-22, isn't it? Right. You, know, you have it, but there's provide, the subspecialty providers right. many do not you know, take it. The same way that the Medicaid card used to be carte blanche, yeah. the Medicare card, is, you do have to pay your 20%. However, you can go anywhere with that Medicare. But once you trade it in for whatever specialized Medicare programs are out there, uh, you're 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 right. at the risk of losing your steady providers and having to start all over again. Well, I can almost tell what you're, how you're going to answer this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. And that is your own personal definition of value in healthcare. What what do you think value is? We looked at what the payers think it is. You know, performance measures. Uh, you know, all sorts of things, uh, you know, bundled payments, how do we get the most efficient, you know, and, and uh, le- most cost-effective medicine uh, for our dollar. Uh, and that's really what they're thinking about. It, it, it is, there's involvement of quality, but quality for them is something that can be measured and, uh, and that requires the, the provider to actually put the resources into their clinics and practices to measure and to report out. Uh, And we talked a little bit about the hospitals themselves uh, and individual providers. And so that's, I'd like to have you tell us what you think as a, as a private doctor, what is value to you? 
Well, I think to me, as a practitioner, as a provider, value is, first of all, having the ability, the time and the ability to communicate with people when they come to me for services and to be able to meet them where they are and begin to help them to wade through. I think that patients, uh, people need to be empowered and to have the ability to decline certain things uh, that they don't want to do, and also to be able to communicate what it is that they need. So to me, value is being able to provide for people where they are and depending on what their needs are. And communication, I think, is the key to that. Because if I let them talk a little and if I listen, then I will be able to give some value that they perceive as value for their visit. So to me, that that I think the communication is the most important thing. And then I, I think being respected, you know, um, often now with all of the changes and with the focus on administration and this value, quote unquote, value-based evaluation, they don't see the, the, the value in that human part of it and and the amount of training and the amount of experience that one brings to being a doctor and to providing these services you know we're not widgets we can't work in 10 minute slots or 15 minute slots some visits will take a half an hour and another one will take five minutes but to me I think is I like to work in a system within a system that values me as somebody who can you know, take care of whatever needs to be taken care of or refer, not ignore uh, things that need to be taken care of. So, I, you know, I think that value is a double-edged sword and, you know, sometimes we get it. And, but the most important thing is to be able to communicate. And f- especially for somebody who's having a visit and they're not happy with what happened, that they're able to say, no, this is not what I came for. And as they have their hand on the doorknob, they tell you, oh, you know, I have this lump on my breast. And that's what I And your heart sinks because you know you've missed the boat. So, yeah. Boy, I, I, I remember that. <laughs> so uh, if you had, uh, if you had uh, ear, if you had Dr. Uh, Joe Biden's ear, about healthcare and how how to make it better. What would be your ideal healthcare system? What would you tell uh, President Biden's administration about how you'd like to really see healthcare go? Uh, first of all, I think that I would advise him to continue with his gentle, thoughtful evaluation of things and to move in those directions. But to me, um, value means access for everybody. And it doesn't necessarily, access to me does not mean insurance. It means real access. So I would be a proponent of universal health care so that everybody could have a baseline health policy. And then if someone had uh, additional money to put into extra services, that they would be able to purchase that. But that, you know, the health care to me is a human right and that access to healthcare and a system that takes care of everybody on an equal basis, regardless of whether they can pay or not, 
irregardless of their race, color, uh, immigration status, uh, economic status. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm a dreamer, but I think that we can get there. And a lot of times, uh, if we really think big, we can figure out how we can take out so many middlemen, you know, and middle people that benefit from the healthcare system and not have a lot of insurance agencies that pay their, their stockholders most of the money and then try to limit access to the technology that all people are entitled to if they need it. So my mine would be a very equitable well said. Well said. <laughs> you know, I think that you've you've hit uh, you've hit something that Movement is Life is uh, very very concerned about and working hard towards the equity uh, in healthcare. And it's really been wonderful speaking to you because I feel that you, you know, despite the challenges, and you've certainly let us know how those go. And it doesn't sound easy. Uh, and certainly we know how, how difficult it has been for many of the patients out there. That's not easy for them either, uh, you know, in getting left out of the system. Uh, but, you know, you've also given us a, a view of a person who actually really tries to do the best they can within the system given and, uh, and is optimistic about it going in the right direction. Uh, and I think that's been really wonderful to hear. So, Dr. Correa, thank you so, so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you. And uh, I hope to have you back again <laughs> sometime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my rambling. And it's been an honor and a pleasure. Oh, no, 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 not at all. And um, and giving us a, just a really wonderful glimpse of the changes taking place at the primary care level uh, from your perspective. And I think it's been so valuable. And I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. I want you to know that you can access a transcript of this podcast and in all of the others we've done on our website, live.com. And remember to subscribe to our Health Disparities podcast on Sorry, Spotify. Um, what? Yes? Could you read movementislifecaucus.com? Oh, thank you for saying that because I didn't write it down that way. Okay. <laughs> you got to start all over again. Where do I have to start? I also <laughs> want to thank you. I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. You can access a transcript of the podcast and all of our previous podcasts on our website, movementislifecaucus.com. And remember to subscribe to our Health Disparities podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or Apple Podcasts. Our monograph, Values Divine by Whom, can be found on the website startmovingstartliving.com. Go to resources and you will find the link to the monograph under booklets. Please be safe, be well, and keep working for health equity. So until next time, goodbye for now. <laughs>